Welcome to the 21st podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Humbled by What You Cannot Have. Welcome to you, brothers and sisters, friends, cabin-challenged people who are here in Rosemont instead of off to the woods and the lake, and those of you who are off to the woods and the lake and whatever, and watching and streaming, we welcome you as well. Glad that you're a part of our service this morning. Man, what a beautiful morning, right? If it could just stay this way until April, then everything would be perfect. Uh, and we also have the air conditioning on here. Have you noticed that? It's, yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about 56, 7 degrees in here, right? Yep. You don't need a refrigerator. You could just chill the meat for later right here in the, in the building, okay? So that just means we got to warm this place up. You already did a great job welcoming each other. I'll try to keep that uh, going for us this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at surprises, and uh, I mentioned the idea that uh, we just need to get used to surprises as believers, as followers of Jesus. Uh, we also talked about uh, on our journey of faith, it is all about increasing faith, not instant faith, and to keep moving whether you really clearly understand God's will for your life right now or not. So if that sort of makes sense, great. If it doesn't make sense, go back and watch what we did last week, and I hope it'll make more sense. Uh, this morning, we are still in Genesis. We're moving along. We have a few more weeks in Genesis before we'll take a break, and then all of a sudden, it's going to be Advent season. So we are right in chapter 29, moving into chapter 30, and a portion of Genesis that really isn't well known at all, probably not a whole lot of time spent on these verses. So we'll give a little background here, joining in with where we left off last week and moving forward. Uh, we talked about Jacob and marrying two different women, uh, Rachel and Leah. So we're going to begin a new family tree as we move forward this morning. His first wife, if you remember from last week, uh, is Leah, whom he didn't want to marry, but he married her anyway. Uh, as part of Laban's deceiving and trickery in Jacob's life. The second wife is Rachel. That's the one he wanted to marry in the first place. And Jacob spent seven years working and waiting and longing for marriage to this woman. Uh, he does wind up getting married to her after a week of party and celebration. And now he's got two wives. So you see both of them, the little diamond uh, image there, sisters, sisters married to the same guy, okay? Now, all right, so let that settle in and, and we'll move on. Okay, so, uh, and you see also the names of Bilhah and Zilpah, the servants that went along with these women, and we'll find out more about the strange relationship that everyone has together. So just just pointing something out here real quick. Just because they did it in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it today. 
Just because they did it then is not God's stamp of approval on this is the right way to be married or to conduct family relationships and so forth. You understand that, right? Because some people don't. Well, they did it in the Bible. That doesn't mean you're supposed to do it today. Just want to clarify that for us this morning. There's a whole lot of dysfunction and a whole lot of weirdness going on with this family. Now, we're going to connect with where we left off last week with just one verse, which is on the next slide. There we go. Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so begins the family tree of Jacob and his wives and of the the wives' servants. From this verse, fast forward all the way to chapter 30, verse 24, we are introduced to almost all of Jacob's children. Now, these verses tell us uh, their names, what the names mean, their birth order, and so forth. So we're not going to read, it's a lengthy passage, we're not going to read every verse, but we are going to hone in on what is significant about these names and so forth. Also, we're going to try to pull out of these verses and this passage, the, this ongoing journey, not just the family in general, but what is different and similar about Leah and Rachel. Okay, So what was different? One was loved and the other unloved. Now, verse 31 says that Leah was hated. So that's not the best way to translate what's going on there. Uh, If you back up just a verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also. That's when uh, the second marriage happens. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And then we go on to this verse. So it's not that he looked at Leah and said, I hate you. It's the, it's the comparison relative to the woman that he truly loved. She was certainly not loved. Now, uh, the value of retaining the word hated in English is significant. Because if you look at another person, you know, like he, like he is, like Jacob is, uh, and I, you know, I love you, Rachel, but... I don't love you, Leah, then what is the message that Leah receives? Is it just that, oh, I'm not loved as much? No, the, the, the weight of the word is, is, it's better to use the word hated to get the weight, to get the full feeling of where Leah is at in this relationship. So I hope that makes sense. He doesn't look at her, I hate you. But the feeling, the emotion, the response yeah, that's probably closer to than I'm just second place. So one was loved, the other unloved. One was able to have children right away, and the other was not. That's the basic difference. But here's the similarity. They both, which I think is on the slide here. There we go. Leah and Rachel, the similarities are this. They both long for what they didn't have, And in that sense, they were both barren. Now, the names of the sons that they have, the children that they have, tells at least part of the story of where they're at, 
and the longing and how they hope to fill their longing. So there are some bright spots with the names and there are some really dark things. And even you could use the word pathetic kind of responses to the situation that they're in. Names mean things in the Bible. We don't always get a clear indication of what they mean, but, but that's one of the most significant parts of this passage. The names that the children get and how that affects Israel and the nation of Israel and how it's established. So the names matter because they reflect the heart. They reflect the, the condition, the situation, what was, what was going on in their lives. So we must uh, take note of those. So I'm going to give you an image here of the family tree, okay? And you see the names And I'm going to give you a quick understanding of what the names mean, which is in the text, but I'm going to kind of move that along for us this morning. Leah's first children. So the first child born uh, through Jacob, Jacob's line, is Reuben. And And the name Reuben means see, a son. So her response, her response from her heart is, now my husband will love me. I've given him a boy. Certainly that'll earn me his love and respect. And then Simeon is born. And that really means the Lord has heard. So it's interesting uh, compared to how many other times that we've already seen in the book of Genesis where someone, uh, whatever the character is in, in, the, in the story as it unfolds, is seeing that, well, that the Lord sees their situation or is acknowledging that the Lord hears me and hears my cry. Isn't it interesting that the first two children, their names mean see and hear. So Simeon, the Lord has heard. She says, Leah says, the Lord has heard that I'm what? That I'm hated. My husband actually hates me. Then Levi is born. And she says, now my husband will be attached to me. That's the feeling in her heart. So the first three sons, now my husband will love me. Even though I'm hated, the Lord has heard, and now hopefully my husband will actually respond to me and become close to me. That's what's going on in Leah's heart. The fourth son is Judah, and that word actually means praise. So this time she says, I'm going to praise the Lord. And now we move from Leah to Rachel, but Rachel's not having any any children of her own yet. It is through her, her servant, Bilhah. And the first son is, and actually uh, Rachel is in a panic, and the text says, give me children, Jacob, or I'm going to die. Look at my status here in my family. Look at my status in relationship to my sister. Give me children. So she's not having children, so she says, here's my servant, uh, Bilhah, which was an accepted thing in ancient times. I know that sounds sketchy. It is sketchy, But if a woman was not able to have a child and they were wealthy enough to have a servant, then this was by proxy a way to have children. So the first uh, child, his name is Dan. And Dan means judged. God has judged me. He's heard my voice uh, and he's given me a son. Uh, Naphtali is the next son. And that word, that name means wrestling. And Rachel says, I've wrestled with my sister and prevailed. So that gives us a clue, an inside look at the tension that's going on in the family between the two sisters. And we move from Rachel 
back to Leah. And Leah has now done the same thing because she's no longer bearing children. So she says, here's my servant Zilpah, have children through her. And then we have Gad, and good fortune has come. That, that's what the name means, good fortune. So now we're having children again. And then Asher, which means happy, happy am I, she says. Uh, women will call me happy because I'm having children again. Well, she's not, but, but you know, uh, through her servant, she's having children again. And then the focus moves back to, back to Leah. And there's this kind of weird thing called a mandrake that appears in the passage. Uh, and in ancient, it's a plant. In ancient times, as far as I can understand, it was seen as some kind of aphrodisiac. So there is this bargaining going back and forth between Leah and Rachel and this scheming to try to have more children. But it's not Rachel, because Rachel thinks she's going to come out ahead of this scheming. She doesn't. Leah has more children. So we, do, we move down the list to Issachar, which means wages. God has given me my wages. So in this bargaining deal, she comes out ahead. I think that's the idea of the, the wage uh, name that's going on there. And then we have Zebulun, which means honor. Now my husband will honor me because what? I've given this man six sons. And that's not typical anywhere. That you know, beats the average for sure. So now finally, I'm going to have honor from this guy. And then Dinah, the daughter is born, which we'll learn more about where Dinah fits into the whole family and what happens there with her. And then finally, we go back to Rachel. And uh, this passage that we're looking at ends with chapter 30, verse 24, and she has Joseph. And Joseph, it's interesting, that name means a couple things, uh, or at least uh, are implied in that name. Uh, on the one hand, he adds, Joseph means he adds, but it also sounds like taking away which is confusing. There's two different things going on at the same time. But Rachel explains, God, on the one hand, it's taken away my reproach because I've finally had this son. Uh, but she's also asking, may the Lord add to another son, which Benjamin happens eventually, but that's after chapter 3 and will be very costly because Benjamin, the birth of Benjamin, will cost Rachel her life. Now, that gives us a quick rundown. Uh, do these names sound familiar at all, even if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis? Well, we'll find out eventually that these names are the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then eventually we'll see in, book, in the book of Genesis that God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So the beginning of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel is right here with the 12 tribes. Longing. Now we began with the idea of longing. And they both long, both daughters, both wives long for something that they cannot have. Longing for something that, that we don't have, that you don't have, is something we can relate to. This story is very difficult to relate to specifically. But in general, we all have times and places in our life where we are longing. Maybe not for children, but no matter what your age or your place in life you have gone through or you are currently going through a time 
when you greatly desire something that is just out of reach, could be children, could be the love or respect of a spouse, could be just the daily bread that we need to live on, could be that new job, could be uh, uh, job security, could be greater meaning and purpose in life. How many times do we see examples of people that we know who have struggled to not just get by in life, especially in suburbia, but to get ahead in life, to have more toys, to have more stuff, thinking that that is what we need and what we want, but the desire is not quenched. Why? Because there's always something better, right? There's always a better paycheck. There's always a bigger boat. There's always the greater, bigger, nicer house on and down the line. There's always something else, which just brings us or should bring us back to the point that our desires are not easily satisfied. They keep dwelling up or coming up within us. That longing that is stamped deep into all of our hearts keeps presenting itself in different ways. So there's always something else out there that's hard to grasp. Or, or maybe you think you have it for a while, but then it just proves to be insufficient. That the longing that we have continues. Now, that we've, you know, I just, well, that was a whirlwind run through of this whole family. But this really is a painful story. Now, a couple times the names are positive, like Judah and praise, but most of the time these names reveal seven plus years of longing, of searching, of wishing I had something more or something better that I just can't get. Maybe it's a child, maybe something else. No, it, it, they never get there. That's the feeling that you get as you read through and you take time to read through every detail of the passage. They're just not getting what it is that they want. So both Rachel and Leah, they, they keep longing. The satisfaction continues to evade them. But as we see through the passage, there is something else that they have in common. And that is they share varying degrees of humiliation. What does humiliation mean? It means lowness. It actually comes from a Latin word that means dirt. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, being down in the dirt. That is a great word picture of what humiliation means. It means to be degraded, looked at or spoken to in a way that knocks you down a step or two or more. That's where their lives are. All the way through chapter 30, verse 25, we see uh, their approach to life uh, is one of, of continuing humiliation. The struggle through family dynamics that are humiliating and, and have ongoing humiliating results. Everything they're going through is in full view of the clan, of the extended family, of everybody that comes and goes. You think rumors are bad now? I mean, just think of the stories that were going on. I mean, if you didn't have a child, that was a sign of sin in ancient times. We've, we've learned a little bit uh, about fertility since then, but, but way back then, they weren't having kids. They did, that's judgment on them. They did something wrong to, in order to be in that place or that position. And they share, like I mentioned earlier, they share the same husband. Does it get any weirder than that? And then you work in their servants. And the loss of intimacy 
I don't know, they never had it, right? I mean, it's one thing to have it and lose it. They never had it in the first place. And to share each other in such a weird dynamic, it's, it's hard to imagine. And then going through the periods of fertility and infertility, bargaining, competing with each other for years, Leah and Rachel looking at each other and looking at Jacob and then looking at their servants. Uh, we can begin to imagine uh, just how difficult and how painful and just how deep the humiliation would go. How their family looks at them, not just how they look at each other, and, and the role of God in this. Where is God in this deep level of humiliation that they're going through? Now, I say all that to really drive something home here. Humiliation is something else we can all relate to readily. It's not something, I mean, to be humiliated is not something we like to talk about, but we've all been through the ringer at one point or another. I will tell you a ringer that I've been through recently. I have plenty of stories of humiliation. It takes me a little bit of time to narrow the list because I don't want to bore you with too many stories of my life. But just recently, I had a birthday. August 23rd is my birthday. The day before my birthday was going to be a banner moment in my life. Now, maybe you don't know this, but I have a truck, okay? And for a long time in my life, I have wanted a truck. Finally got a truck last year. But that was just the beginning of my dream. So for many years, I'm talking a couple decades at least, I have wanted to own a kayak. I loved getting out on a lake and to be able to shoot out in a kayak and leave your troubles behind and enjoy the moment. That's something I've always wanted. So just a few weeks ago, I purchased my first kayak. Now, it wasn't a regular kayak you get at REI or some other sports store. Uh, it's, it's one that's designed in a, by a, a nonprofit organization that I didn't know much about. Okay, I'm, just, I'm not poo-pooing them. I just I didn't know much about it but I figure the kayaks are probably the same everywhere, right? Now, uh, on August 22nd, this is the day I've been looking forward to for years. And I know I'm building this up on purpose because it was a big deal for me to take my kayak that I own and place it on my truck that I own and go to a nearby lake, something I've dreamed of for years, to put that kayak, kayak in the water, put myself in the kayak, and paddle out to dream come true. I did that on the 22nd. I put the kayak in the water. I get into the kayak. I begin to paddle out on Cobblestone Lake. It begins to feel very unstable. Well, it must be my fault. It's the way I'm uh, you know, shifting my weight or, or my, my butt's not in the right place. So I'm moving around carefully inside the kayak. I, you know, I dip the oar in the water. It kind of jerks me to the left. Well, that's not right. So I don't have my weight centered or I'm, I'm moving my legs around. It doesn't feel right this whole time. Uh, it feels very insecure and wobbly. I keep moving out very slowly out towards the middle of the lake. As I dip my oar into the right, this sucker acts like it's trying to kill me. It pitches me violently into the lake. 
I have been in a number of kayaks in my life and canoes. I have never fallen out of a watercraft unless it was intentional. Okay? This is a new experience for me. Now, if you've been in, on any smaller lake in Minnesota this summer, you know they're low and they're nasty. It threw me in so fast, my mouth is wide open. And I got a mouthful of the green slime in Cobblestone Lake. Fortunately, I have my life vest on. So eventually, I bob up to the surface again. And I'm gagging out what, was, what I didn't swallow and what is still in my mouth, spewing it out, looking around. And what is the first thing you do when you're humiliated? Did anyone see me? I'm in the middle of, of Cobblestone Lake. There's one other guy that I see on the lake in a kayak fishing. He sees me from a distance and he starts booking, you know, digging his oars, rowing towards me to see, dude, are you okay? Does it look like I'm okay? That's the other thing that wells up. Because when you're humiliated, you lash out in anger at your own situation, and whoever, even if they're nice, whoever, I didn't actually say that, I didn't yell at him. I I managed to repress that, but I felt angry because somebody's got to pay for this because I looked stupid. Now, we can go on about what happened. I don't know what happened, but my dream was dashed into the green, murky slime of Cobblestone Lake. I eventually got back to the edge of the lake. I dragged that thing out. I dumped the slime water out of it. And now is a chance that I have to begin thinking of what went wrong. And I ask myself, how could I have done this different? What it is that I need to learn from this? The question is, does, or did, in my circumstance, did my humiliation lead to humility because they are two entirely different things. I could choose to be nothing but humiliated and to be angry and to throw that sucker back in the lake and let it sink to the bottom and storm off back to my truck soggy and nasty and be nothing but mad. That's humiliation without humility. Or you begin to reason and to think and to slow down. And what is it that I need to learn from my humiliation that will cause me to back up, to consider who I am, my limitations, my weaknesses, and to begin apply to apply what it is that I just went through? What are my circumstances teaching me? Do we have any evidence in this story that Leah and Rachel are growing in humility? Perhaps, but we don't know for sure. This is where I think the genius of the narrator comes to play. It's similar to a good parable. And Jesus' parables are all good. And if you read in the Gospels, the parables that Jesus taught, they're not just a moral story. Apply this, do better. So many of the parables are open-ended. Go back and read them. Notice that. 
We have a story, but at the end of the parable, end of the story, it's open-ended. Jesus said, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. As you read a parable, or if you were fortunate enough to hear Jesus speaking the parable, the story ends, and if you have ears to hear, then the Spirit of God is speaking. What would you do? If you were in that sandals, in those sandals, what would your response be? What is it that needs to sink deep in that circumstance that I need to take uh, notice of and to consider changing? I think that's similar, at least, to what's going on here. We're not introduced to all this humiliation, all this trouble and difficulty for no reason at all, or just, oh, that's ancient times, an ancient story, whatever. No, we're introduced to this to begin thinking about our own humiliation. As we go through the grind of life, day after day, even year after year, what's the point of this? The pain, the frustration, dysfunction. God just doesn't rub our face in difficulties and I can do this to you. There's a point. Is it leading us deeper into humility? I believe God uses our humiliation and those experiences to grow humility in us. That, and I'll, I'll add this, that is so important because we don't naturally ever go towards humility on our own. I mean, think about it. I mean, maybe there's times where you, you, you desire that or uh, there's uh, really good moments, right? Most of the time, we're not naturally moving towards humility. And that's wherever you're at in life. Because maybe you think, well, I've got it bad and why would God humiliate me? And that doesn't seem very fair. There's something He's at work at in all of our lives, no matter what our place in life is. And I really do believe humiliation is a tool that can garner that position that if we are open to how He's working, we can begin talking with Him. And that leads us to prayer. Uh, Author John Stark, you may not have heard of him, I just heard of him recently. He calls humiliation a severe mercy. Okay? Let that sink in. A severe mercy. Listen to what he says. He wrote a book called The Possibility of Prayer. I have a quote here. Listen to what he says, connecting the dots. We are resistant to humiliation, yet we needn't be. There's a nearness to God that at first may feel like death, but is really working to get the death out of us. It may feel like death at first, but really working to get the death out of us. Humiliation teaches us where we have overextended our, our competencies and thought too highly of ourselves. It teaches us that we are needy. Time and emotional distance from our sins cannot make us morally competent before God. Only His blood can do that. We must not wait until we feel better about ourselves before we come to God. That's just pride masked by self-loathing. Consider that. Coming quickly to God in repentance is a sign of humility of putting all our trust in the blood of Christ, knowing that we have no worthiness in ourselves. That coming quickly to God, 
That's what we call prayer. Many times I've said, you got to pray when you don't want to. This is a perfect example in this topic of moving from humiliation to greater humility. The path from humiliation to humility leads through prayer. Coming back to God just as we are in, even in the depth of humiliation when we want to push back the hardest. That's where God is at work. To be smart enough, wise enough to realize that and then say, Lord, what is going on here? Make me more open and soft and receptive to your spirit. In this passage, there is a mention of God listening. We didn't read all those verses, but, but he listens to both Leah and Rachel. Leah, verse 17. Rachel, verse 22. God listened to whatever it is that they were saying. And I think the narrator in giving us those, all those names and the meaning of those names, we don't know what else they're saying in prayer to God, but at least we know those things. God was not deaf to what it is that they were struggling with. God listened. So at least we have the introduction of this idea that they were returning to God in the way that they knew how, through the naming of their children and the expression of what it was that they were going through. They were calling out to God, and God heard. Now, let's talk about prayer just for a moment. I want to be real specific here and, and hopefully help us move forward with prayer. Because many times today, prayer is largely seen as self-expression only. And there is a place in prayer for self-expression. We have all these names. They are expressing who they are and where they were at before God. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we need to do that. The Psalms are filled with those examples. We are to present our request to God where are we at? Whatever it is that's on our hearts, God tells us to do that without holding anything back. There's no reason or point in that. He cares for what we care about and what we are concerned with in the moment. So prayer is at least self-expression. It begins with expressing who am I, what I'm, where I'm at, what I'm going through, but then it continues through that. So we shouldn't stop with just that self-expression piece. We need to move on. So how do we do that? Did you notice as we read that psalm this morning? Psalm 139. If you have it, turn, turn there real quick. Okay, Psalm 139. We didn't read the whole psalm. We just read only a portion of it. The psalmist is a great example. The psalmist is expressing himself and where he's at before God. But he doesn't end there because he keeps coming back to who God is. Another part of the psalm says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. That's, it. That's where he's at. That's where his heart is. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light with you. The next step in prayer is to remember who God is. Remind yourself through His living Word of who He is and what He does and how He deals with you. Reminding ourselves 
of the nature and the character of God at work in our lives gives us a different perspective. Not all is night, even though you may be in a dark place. God is light. And what He's working on is not finished yet. Scripture keeps pointing us in that direction. And then how do your prayers change? Oh God, how vast, unsearchable your thoughts are. As I begin to consider again how great you are, God, I am grateful. I'm filled with gratefulness that you are so great and you can handle this. Scripture leads us to that point. Do you see where I'm going with that? That's, where our, that's how our prayers can be filled with Scripture and fill us instead of just being the tap that you open up and everything pours out and then what, how do I get filled again? You get filled by who God is and His great love for you and His mercy that's new every day and how His grace covers everything and every part of you. And then you and I, we truly have a different way to think and a different way to see the condition that we're in. Now also remember this, humiliation, moving to humility, involves prayer. Jesus went there before we ever did. In the garden, how did you remember how Jesus prayed? Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. The humiliation. Jesus saw the humiliation that was about to happen to him. He knew it. The pain, the abandonment, the oh, the weight of that was extreme to the point of death, even the gospels tell us if there's any other way. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't stop there. He returns to what he knows his Father's will is. So in light of your will, Lord, not mine, be done. Only yours. Your will be done. He returns back to what the Father tells him to do. That humiliation leads him, Jesus, into deeper humility. And Paul recognizes that in his letter to the Philippians, just a couple of verses here, whoops, in uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or continue to be held onto in that way, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his act in humility brought him death and brings us life. That's the fruit of what he did. Also in that book I mentioned earlier, he quotes, the author quotes Henry Nouwen who says, a pruned vine does not look beautiful, but during harvest time, it produces much fruit. Pruned vine in the time or in the moment or even when we're pruned, when God is at work in us, even through those humiliating circumstances and situations, it does not look pretty and it does not feel good, but the fruit is coming. The point is out there. God is at work and he has not abandoned any of us. And if we are ever in doubt, Look to Jesus. 
who went there first, he, through his humiliation and his humbleness, brings us life. That's where this passage leads us this morning. There is no dead end in the life of Jacob and his children. The story goes on. So too with us because of the cross, because of the bloody cross that we sang about earlier this morning. We have life. And now we go there this morning as we consider communion and the fellowship around the table. So, Let's pause and pray. And here's what I'd like to do. I'm just going to leave it quiet for a few moments uh, for this, uh, this uh, time to be a time to speak openly with the Lord. I just spoke about prayer. Uh, maybe there are times that have been a struggle or humiliating for you. Difficult, hard, recently. Come to Christ. Ask Him, Lord, what is it that you're doing How do I need to respond? How can I listen? How can I see your hand in this? If you haven't already done that yet, make these moments a time to do that and listen to Him. Do that right now, and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we realize this morning that it's not so much about being humbled by what we cannot have, but being humbled by what we can have. Humbled in the presence of Jesus. Humbled in the gift of salvation. Humbled by the fact that we have done nothing to deserve it. The only thing we did to contribute is our sin. And Jesus, You reach out and grab us in our sin and move us forward by grace. By grace we've been saved. This is a gift. We receive it by faith joyfully. Lord Jesus, work in us even in those circumstances that we don't want. Cause us, Lord, to warm up instead of cool off when we are found and when we find ourselves in the middle of what is going on. Lord, remind us, whisper again, Holy Spirit, to wake us up so we would see You, come to speak to You, have fellowship with You. We know You long for those times. And Lord, we we ask that in the midst of those times, we would remember Your Word. We would be motivated to cherish it, to treasure what You've said about Yourself and Your plan for us. And move us forward, Lord, in grace to stand humbled by what You've done to have our eyes open to what You are about to do. Lord, uh, as we come to this this time where we continue to worship, we we share with the juice that we have before us and, and the wafer that we have. Lord, fill our hearts with joy and gratitude that Your humble attitude before us is the only reason we have to rejoice this morning. Fill our hearts with that kind of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our Genesis Sermon series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including First Peter, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.